Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People read religious and philosophical symbols into the Bible all the time. They study other traditions or the symbols of ancient mythologies and jump to conclusions, reading biblical metaphor against a non-biblical context. Worse, they make horrific assumptions about the supposed continuity between these traditions and the biblical tradition. God forbid. When the Bible employs such symbols from the ancient world, it does so not to endorse, but to co-opt in order to make its own point. For the Magi, this point is clear. The truth is definitely not in our stars, but in the hand of the one who both made the stars and controls them, the Father of Righteousness. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 230 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we're going to talk about the Magi at the beginning of chapter 2 and about the star in the east. And right from the outset of today's program, I want to stress to the audience the importance of not buying into the premise that there is some kind of continuity or growth out of, or positive relationship between the biblical tradition and the various philosophical and religious traditions that came before the Bible and the ancient Near East. Very often people speak as though there's a natural progression from Plato to Paul, that somehow Plato and his disciples were on the right path when they talked about God and so forth, and that this naturally led them to finally worship the God of the Bible. All of this is nonsense. It's nonsense. The Bible was written specifically and pointedly in opposition to Hellenistic philosophy and to the cultic traditions of the ancient Near East. This includes all of the rhetoric about soothsaying and astrology, all of it. It's all included. It's not that the Bible didn't consider these things real. They were real in the sense that Paul talked about idols. Real because we give them power. So if Scripture is dealing with them, if Scripture is co-opting these symbols, these religions, these metaphors, these archetypes, if it's doing so, it's in order to strip them of their power. That's how it works. In Ezekiel, we've discussed this in the past, Richard. God presents himself in the narrative of the prophecy as a deity who looks like all of the other deities on the earth. He has all of the militaristic trappings of glory from a worldly perspective in the way that he's presented 
in the writing of Ezekiel. So if a deity wears a certain type of clothing or sounds a certain way or moves a certain way, God is described that way, but in a way that undermines and disempowers and demasculates that symbolism. It's using the symbolism in order to disempower and emasculate it so that ultimately it destroys the power, the hold that the false god has over you. The reality of these false gods is what humans make of them. They're functional. They're real when humans act as if they're real. Now, that doesn't mean they're good. They're still causing destruction. But the interesting thing in Matthew 2 is that just because they're wicked or off-base or ignorant doesn't mean that they can't be used to further some other purpose. Throughout the Bible, God is using reprobate, sinful human beings to make his point. Now, that doesn't mean that the first thing is good. It's going to be good only insofar as God is using it. It's functional. The Bible doesn't say that soothsaying or astrology doesn't provide information. It just says that it provides you lies. It provides information that's simply a reflection of your ego. But it doesn't say it doesn't exist. It's there. But it only makes sense once it's employed for God's message and God's purpose. In the same way that we have the king in 1 Samuel 8, where the human beings begged for a king to be like the other nations, and God said, well, because they're so evil and rebellious, I'll give them a king. And then God uses that king in order to make his point, where the people eventually end up under the king of Assyria and then Babylon. But the fact that God is able to make good of the king doesn't mean the king is good by himself. The king is always bad, from 1 Samuel 8, from the very beginning. By the same token, the people were going to be punished and taken into exile. Even though this was a terrible tragedy that the people had to live through, it didn't matter for God because he was going to make his point. Does that mean that that makes this captivity any better, any different than what it was before? No, it functions to tell the story. That doesn't make it good, but it still functions so that God can say and do what he wants to say and do. So yes, there is Hellenistic philosophy. There is Persian astrology or Mesopotamian astrology. But they are not good in and of themselves because God does something with them. They're only good because God makes something of them. By themselves, they always remain wicked. Paul talks about this in Romans. The people of Israel were held up as an example. They were chosen to be held up as an example of sin. Because once the law was given to them, their sin was exposed. Now, because their sin was useful, it was an example to the nations and presented an opportunity for the nations so that they too could come under the law. The fact that this stumbling of Israel exposed the Lord's grace and made all these wonderful things happen does not mean that the stumbling of Israel was good. This is very difficult for people to understand, which is why Paul has to keep hitting on it. But it's right on the razor edge of how Scripture keeps us from having a self-righteous, entitled attitude without allowing us to disappear into useless self-flagellation over our sins, which would lead to a different kind of self-righteousness where we try to prove that we can be without sin. That's where the whole gospel of grace comes into play. 
So you have to be able to understand that God can use something wicked, whether it's wicked from your perspective or wicked from his perspective, it doesn't matter. He's God. He can do what he wants. He can take anything and make it functionally good for his purpose. And systematically, again, systematically in the biblical tradition, when he co-opts something that is a mainstay of kingly power or cultic religious power or Hellenistic philosophical power, whatever it is, imperial power, when he uses these things, it's always to strip them completely of their power and to assign and ascribe all power to himself, which then shifts the focus away from your ego as a human being and towards the ego of the written word. The reason Richard and I are stressing this at the outset of Matthew chapter 2 is because too often people extrapolate from the story of the Magi that there's a natural progression between the astrology and the religion and the philosophy of the ancient world and the scriptural God, that somehow these things led them to the scriptural God. This is a very cheap and unenlightened reading of these few verses in Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, So right here in verse 1, Richard, we have the scene established. Jesus was born in the city of David in the southern kingdom, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it's a continuation of this old David, new David paradigm. So as we were saying, just as scripture co-opts the symbols and the metaphors of all of the different cultic religions and philosophies and traditions in order to make its point, it's also within its own system, co-opting the symbol Bethlehem, co-opting the symbol Judea in order to emasculate the Davidic line represented by Herod. Herod represents the kind of king that those hearing the genealogy wanted and expected. And why do we know that? Because we know people don't repent, and we know that given the choice, we would make the same choice today that Israel made all those chapters ago in the Old Testament when they asked the prophet for a king. Right off the bat, it's all about kingship, kingship, kingship. The problem is that people read this story about Jesus born in Bethlehem and all this out of context. They hear it in Sunday school and they perform it at Christmas pageants and all this. And they don't bother with the really boring piece in chapter one, which is the genealogy. The genealogy set up Jesus as an anti-David, a new kind of David, not a new David as in he's going to repeat David, but a new kind of David that will not be like the old David. The old David was of the flesh, and we have the entire fleshly line, which we saw break at Joseph, and then we had this Jesus introduced by the hand, or better yet, the word of his father, the Lord, his God. So we are setting up Jesus as a new type of king in chapter one. And then here at the beginning of chapter two, we begin with the plain old garden variety king we've had all this time with a little bit of a twist in that Herod comes from this line of Jews who were 
converted and so originally were not Jews, but in the early Roman Empire became Jews. And so the empire co-opted these kings in order to put their thumb in the eye of the Jews by picking someone who's a convert rather than somebody who was from their line. And so we have this opposition of two kings. And one must take note, Richard, that the name Herod is a Greek name. Herodis comes from the word eros in Greek, which means hero. So you've got Jesus, who's the Yeshua, Jesus, the one who brings the victory of the Lord and who saves the people. The salvation is linked to the victory. It's salvation in the way that you are rescued from a siege when someone marches in victory against your enemy. Jesus is the one who saves the people, who saves the city in this sense. Versus the king with a Greek name that alludes to this idea of the Greek hero, the demigod. So Herod is the king the people want. I want to keep stressing this, and it's reflected even in his name. Hero, I mean, he's literally a Greek hero. He is a man sitting on David's throne with a Greek name that means hero. And it goes a little further because it's Erodis, which could be a patronymic. It could mean son of a hero. And it could also mean appearance or likeness. And so it could be the likeness of a hero, a hero's likeness. So is Herod the likeness of the first David? Is Herod the hero that the people wanted when they asked Samuel for a king? I think the answer in context of the genealogy is clearly yes. Herod is the king they wanted, and Herod is an abuser. Herod represents the least impressive consequence of a line of kings who were cruel and selfish and tyrannical and even mistreated their own people. And he was known for great building programs and for being a great architect. So, you know, it's a fantastic example of the run-of-the-mill king that Jesus is supposed to be supplanting. Well, Father Paul points out in the rise of Scripture that Herod was collecting money to build the temple. Now, it's the functional Herod because many people have borne the name Herod. It's Herod the way it's Caesar, the way it's Pharaoh. It doesn't have to be a specific individual in history. The point is, the imposter sitting on the throne of the Lord's anointed was abusing the people like Solomon to build his edifice in Jerusalem. So he's not the king around whom all the nations of the earth will be gathered in order to submit to the Lord's instruction. He's the king who wants to build an army, raise money to have a huge temple so that he can bask in his own glory. He is truly a Greek hero, a demigod, a superman, or at least trying to be one. This stands in contrast with Jesus, Yahshua, the one who brings the Lord's victory, the one who saves the people, who rescues the city from the imposter, who rescues the city from the occupier. But again, these are symbols that have been co-opted. Even the word victory has been co-opted because the victory Jesus brings is not a military victory, which is what the people want and expect. And it must be stressed that you have two candidates for the throne, Herod and Jesus. One has a Greek name that connects him to the mythologies of Hellenism. I mean, he's the hero. The other one has a Hebrew name that very explicitly connects him to the victory wrought by the Lord 
who is the commander who moves the kings of the earth around on the chessboard like pawns. So already we understand that if you have foreign kings coming to Jerusalem, it's under the control of the father of Jesus. Yes, and the line of Herod and the line of Jesus are key. I mean, with the line of Jesus being the son of Joseph, the son of Jacob, and we have Herod, who interestingly is the son of Antipater, who is from Idumea, which means Edom, which is the other name for Esau, the brother and enemy of Jacob. So Matthew is very clever in the way that he divides these two lines in order to set them against each other. The Jesus, new king, and the Herod, old style king. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This is the verse that caused us to emphasize at the outset that there is not a natural progression from cultic astrology or Greek religion and mythology. There is not a natural progression from Plato to Paul. There is not. You cannot assume that everyone is talking about the same God. This is not true. We have thousands and thousands of letters inscribed in the Book of Life trying to clarify that the gods that other people worship are not the same as the scriptural God. So it's not simply a mistake to talk this way. It's blasphemy, Richard. How can you say that the God Plato was talking about is the same as the scriptural God? This is blasphemy. Plato is an enemy of scripture. Now, in our tradition, we have this beautiful hymn that we sing on Christmas, that those who worship the stars were taught by a star to worship Jesus, the son of righteousness. And it's the son as an S-U-N, the son of righteousness. It's a play, again, on the metaphor of the stars. But the power of the metaphor of the star here in Matthew is that, once again, the very thing that is a sign of this kind of false worldly glory, that is a sign of these false teachings, is now co-opted. It's not that it's a progression from there to here. It's not a progression. It's a complete co-opting of these symbols. Richard, we were talking earlier about the example where Paul talks about the unknown God in Hellenism. Where you have all these philosophers who are arguing about the nature of this God in very highfalutin terms. Paul comes along and treats them as naive, saying, I actually know about this God and let me tell you about this God. It doesn't mean that the philosopher's talk was any less vain because Paul was able to at least elevate the conversation to something that made sense. What it meant is that Paul used their vain talk in order to make a point about the true God. Again, that doesn't mean that that gives validity to what they were saying. He used it for his own purposes. And this is exactly what we have here, where they follow this star because they believe in astrology. God then uses this star to lead them to God. But to do so does not mean that astrology now is true and we should all believe in astrology or that God built upon astrology in order to create his theology. It doesn't make sense. He just used it for his own purposes. Astrology did not put them on a path toward Jesus Christ. I feel silly just having to say it. They were stuck with astrology. They were under the boot of astrology. 
and God decided to be merciful and play with them and adjust the map just like he did with good old Jonah in that lovely little book and get them to relocate to Mount Zion, not where Herod was, but where the true king, the true bringer of victory, exactly. Jesus Christ, happened exactly. to be located. So when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He should be troubled. He should be stirred up. The word in Greek is taraso. He should find it very disturbing that these kings of the earth, the Magi, are coming to Jerusalem, but they're not coming to see him. They don't care about his temple. They don't care about his heroics. They don't care about his wealth or his status. They don't care about any of it. They're not interested. They are coming to see the one who is truly the son of the eschatological David. Not the David of history, but the corrected David in the imagination of the genealogy. This David. They're coming to see the one who is truly the Lord's anointed in fulfillment of Psalm 2. The nations are beginning to gather around the Lord's anointed in Zion. And what's striking again is that Jesus is powerless. He's a little baby. So you have a mighty king, a hero, a Greek hero, an imposter sitting on the throne in Jerusalem who's terrified of a little baby. Jesus who is born of Judea, so therefore a true Jew, not from Jerusalem. He's from Bethlehem, a village outside of Jerusalem. Then we have the outsider, the Idumean, Herod, who now inhabits Jerusalem. And then there are these magi from the east who say, where is the king of the Jews? Who is the one who is born king of the Jews? And this must leave Herod either angry that someone would dare say that someone else was the king, or would leave him shaking in his boots, wondering who is this other king who could be challenging him for his throne. Both responses call to mind, of course, Ahaz and the prophecy of Isaiah, the shaking in the boots, and at the same time, the desire to hold on to what you have and the willingness to do what it takes to hold on to what you have. As we progress in the story, we'll see exactly what Herod is capable of. We'll see how Matthew continues to interlock and interconnect his narrative with the narrative of the Old Testament, of the Pentateuch. People have called Matthew a mini Torah because of this, and I think that's accurate to a point. It's not that Matthew by itself can replace the Old Testament, but Matthew by itself embodies the teaching of the Old Testament in such a way that it invites and pulls you back into the nitty-gritty of the Old Testament. So all of these patterns that will continue to emerge will continue to emphasize what we first encountered in the genealogy. It's kind of like the genealogy was the Big Bang at the very beginning, and everything after the genealogy is like an echo of that initial explosion. So we'll keep hitting these waves of Old Testament symbolism. But it's enough for today's episode. Again, Richard, distress that this is a showdown between the Greek hero and the Semitic Messiah. It sounds impressive, the showdown between the Greek hero and the Semitic Messiah, and then you add that he's just a little baby, and you begin to understand that we're not talking about kingship in the same way, and we're definitely not talking about astrology or Greek philosophy. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. 
just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.